Welcome to Car Wash, the podcast, your source for real stories and real business insights from the experts, both in and out of the car wash industry. So put it in neutral, feed off the brakes, and take your hands off the steering wheel, because here we go. Here is your guide on this journey, David Begin of Begin Insights. Hello, Car Wash Nation. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Car Wash the Podcast, the podcast that can make you a great car washer and a better overall human being. This is your host, David Begin. How's everybody doing out there today? We're starting to move into the fall time frame. So if winter is your busy season, I'm sure everybody's getting ready to wash a lot of cars. We love it here in Colorado because the snow events make for great car washing days. I've got a great guest today, Reuven Bernkrant, who's the CEO of PetroCal Associates located in Southern California. They do a lot of different things for car wash and convenience store operators. They help with acquisitions. They're involved in construction process. They're big in financing. So they do initial financing and do refinancing for car wash owners and convenience store owners. And they're also involved in real estate brokerage. So Ruben, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Absolutely, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, give me a little history of PetroCal Associates, how did you get started with this business and how did it evolve to what it is now? Yeah, sure thing. So PetroCal Associates is a boutique commercial real estate and mortgage brokerage firm specializing in financing and real estate brokerage for the car wash and gas station industries. So we have clients ranging in size from the new to industry operator to larger multi-site operators. And our core business really is the financing side. So helping borrowers identify lenders that can meet both their immediate and long-term financing needs. And then on the real estate and business brokerage side, we represent buyers and sellers in the purchase and sale or leasing of gas station and car wash properties. Okay. Seems interesting that you do a lot of different things at PetroCal Associates where most times if you get into financing, people specialize in financing, but you're specializing in quite a lot of activities. Yeah. So when I started in finance, I was initially just doing equipment financing and wanted to do something that was a little bit more complex when it came to structuring financing. And so commercial mortgage brokerage was where I segued into. And in looking at different industries, the car wash and gas station industries are highly fragmented. And so there's a real need to help smaller operators find financing solutions that will meet their needs. And a lot of lenders and banks shy away from these industries because of the special purpose nature of the industries in that the properties can really only be used for either a gas station or car wash. It doesn't have, unlike a shopping center or something like that, that could be a a variety of different uses. And also environmental concerns. So between those two factors, a lot of lenders shy away from this. And so I saw an opportunity to provide real value to operators by helping them find the lenders that would help them finance their projects. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because we always always knew from the car wash side of things that you know, they're considered single use or special purpose projects, which means, you know, we're always joked around that you might be able to turn the car wash tunnel into a beer barn, but that's probably about 
the extent of it. I don't know what else you can do with that particular building. But are convenience stores considered special use as well? I, is that because of the gas station component of it? Yeah. So we really only do convenience stores that have the gas component. And so by the time you add in a canopy and dispensers and underground storage tanks, those properties also fall into that specialty use or single use category, unlike a standalone convenience store that could be converted to any other type of retail. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense because once you put those tanks in the ground, I mean, tanks obviously have gotten much better than they used to be in the old days. But, you know, there's a lot of work that has to be done from a cleanup process. They've got a term for it, but I can't remember what the overall term is. Yeah. So with the advances in technology, there are now monitoring systems in place that really serve to mitigate a lot of the risk for potential contamination issues. And that's why when I got into this, I felt confident that we'd be able to help borrowers find lenders that would be able to kind of shake off those initial impressions once they really got to understand the fact that the environmental risk on newer, more recently built sites is a lot more limited. And similarly, when it comes to car washes, that they tend to get lumped in as equally risky to a gas station, but that's not really the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it takes a little bit of time to convince the the lenders, whether they're a new bank or the SBA has gotten pretty smart about it, but it seems like that there are certain banks out there that still have this, you know, certain ideas about car washing that really don't exist anymore. Definitely. And that's why it's important for borrowers to understand that and operators to understand that just because they have an initial conversation with their deposit lender or the depository institution and that bank doesn't have an interest in financing their proposed car wash project, that doesn't mean that it's not a financeable deal. It just means that it's not a fit for that particular lender. And oftentimes, I would say the vast majority of the time, when we are arranging financing for a borrower, the lender that we're going to work with won't require the depository relationship. They'll actually understand that cash management, treasury management might be better handled by a different bank, and they're comfortable having more of a transactional relationship and just providing the construction or permanent or mortgage financing for the operator. Yeah, that's interesting. The banks that I did business with certainly wanted my checking and savings business as well. So, and I I get that. I guess they want to kind of see what's going on with the overall project and it gives them a little better transparency and visibility to what's happening with the business. Sure. And that's not to say that our lenders wouldn't necessarily be happy to have that as well, but they're also more understanding of the fact that they're not always going to get that and that's not necessarily a problem for them. Yeah. Do you typically do convenience store car washes? Do you any standalone car washes? Has that evolved over the years? You know, when I got into this business, I would say that two thirds of my business was gas station C store and about a third was car wash. And that has evolved over time to now probably 80% of what we're doing is standalone car wash and 20% is a gas station C store or gas station C store with a rollover or something like that. Our focus really is primarily on the express segment, reason being that today, due to a lack of inventory on the market for the last few years, a vast majority of the transactions that we work on are ground up construction projects. And so the fact that I believe in 2018, I saw a report that over 90% of the tunnels built were express tunnels, that explains why 
such a large portion of our business really is focused on the express segment. Yeah. Do you basically focus in the Southern California area or do you expand beyond that? We can arrange financing for operators throughout the United States. The majority of our clients are located in the Western United States, but that's primarily just organic kind of word of mouth where a lot of our contacts have been located. But the reality is today in the last, I would say, 12 months, we've done projects throughout the United States from Florida, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Texas, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, California. So we're kind of all over the place. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, the Southern California market has changed so much in the last five or 10 years, you know, it was primarily full serve car washing, but there's been a number of events that have taken place from a regulatory standpoint or just, you know, labor standpoint, that's making it more and more difficult for the full service operators to operate. But that was like ground zero for full serve car washes forever. Definitely. And once California operators kind of wisened up to the fact that some of the trends that were going on in other parts of the country made a lot of sense to bring to California, we've seen fairly explosive growth in terms of the express segment to the point where we're starting to see some markets even get towards a saturation point in Southern California. So it took us a while to wisen up, but we've gotten there. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I think people breathe a breath of fresh air when they transition from a full serve, which I love full serve car washes and God bless the people that operate them and own them because it's such a great service, but they are challenging and difficult in this environment. Definitely. And to expand upon that, I mean, when you look at some of the trends that COVID-19 is likely going to have in terms of lasting effects on the industry, I think that that's just going to speed up the transition from full service to express for a lot of operators just by nature of the fact that you know the express segment allows people to wash their car in a socially distant manner without having to allow an employee the car wash to get into the car and recessions have a tendency to do that they have a tendency to kind of speed up trends that were kind of already in process and so we expect the transition from full serve to express to follow that same trend yeah no doubt i had a client that i'm working with that made that transition as well from being a full serve flex serve operation to an exterior express. Once they did that, I think they never looked back. I think that will accelerate the ones that are kind of on the fence or, you know, I do feel like the full serve model will still be around. There just won't be as many of them. Definitely. And there's some markets where it's always going to make sense, right? To, you know, those markets where you have higher median incomes, where you have higher end cars that are looking for that detail type service. We expect to still see, you know, a handful of full service operators come out on the other end of this and still be providing those services. But as the consumer looks for services that they can utilize in a faster manner, that have more of a green component, that are technologically a little bit more advanced, we anticipate a continuing shift in the consumer behavior more towards the express segment. But I'll clarify that one of the the things about that that benefits the full service operator is the fact that right now is a, a great time to put quality sites that are good conversion sites on the market because due to a lack of inventory, we're seeing express operators be willing to pay a premium just to get a site that is entitled for car wash use. And so full service operators can really take advantage of the fact that even as the consumer 
starts to trend away from the service they offer, that express operators are willing to pay them a, a substantial premium relative to what the income of their full service wash might support in order to acquire a site that's convertible to an express. Yeah, no doubt. That's becoming much easier. And the more I see people build the difficulties that they're going through in finding sites and all the regulatory issues that cities and counties are putting on car washes now, the advantages of buying an existing site that's got an existing tap fee. I don't know what tap fees are in Southern California, but in the Denver, Colorado Springs area, they're breathtakingly expensive. And, you know, if I can get an existing site that already has a great operations, everything set up and I'm just converting it, it certainly makes it a lot easier. And it is a great opportunity for people who are thinking about selling or maybe the business, the full server flex service business isn't doing exactly what they're hoping. Exactly. We're even seeing that on people who acquire it and still do a raise and rebuild. It's not like they're just adding equipment to the tunnel and converting it that way. We're seeing people who will purchase an existing full serve, raise the improvements and redevelop it as an express with a completely different layout. But they can justify doing that because of how difficult it is to find sites that can get permitted for the use. Yeah. So you said something interesting earlier that this convenience store, I, I know car washing is still considered very much a fragmented industry, but is the convenience store industry still fragmented? Yeah, it is. Not as heavily fragmented as the car wash industry, but you still have a majority of the sites in the United States operated by less than 10 unit operators. So we still look at that as a highly fragmented industry. Okay. So less than 10 units in convenience stores is considered very much an independent operator, I guess, is what I like to call them. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. When you're talking to convenience store owners, do you encourage them to do a car wash as a profit center? How do you work in car washing with your convenience store customers? That's a good question. I do because I'm very bullish on the car wash industry as a whole. So the key is, what does the convenience store operator have to give up in order to do that? So when I see a convenience store operator come to me with a site plan that includes a rollover and they're down the street from a 120 foot express tunnel, you know, I, I try and caution them that the site that they might have built 10 years ago that had that rollover where they could really rely on it as a profit center versus the one they're building today, given the the trends in the consumer and their increasing familiarity with the express concept, to be more apprehensive about building a rollover attached to a convenience store site. That said, it remains a good profit center for C-store operators. Usually, they're able to use the fuel as almost a loss leader to get the customer to buy a car wash. And just as with an express car wash, cost of goods is fairly limited. So there's a, a high profit margin for the operator in each car wash sale. The same is the case on a rollover car wash. So I would say more often than not, C-store operators that are developing larger sites will look to have a car wash as a profit center, but the operators who are able to acquire, you know, a one and a half acre site instead of a one acre site, wherein they'll be able to build a mini tunnel or even a full size express tunnel, those are the guys who are really going to get the biggest benefit from having the car wash as a profit center. Okay, good. Well, you you kind of answered my next question, but when do you recommend in-bay automatics versus tunnels? And are, 
do you try to get people to lean toward tunnels? And then what size do you typically recommend? I guess, obviously, that's constrained by land, but do you typically tell them to go as large as they can if there's an opportunity? Yeah, I mean, as long as it's not going to adversely impact general traffic circulation on the site, I do. Because again, I think that more and more consumers are shifting away from home car washing. And as that happens, and consumers become aware of the express segment, you have more and more consumers who are seeking out that type of wash. And the reality is, you know, more equipment usually results in a better wash. There's a point where that's not the case, but as a rule of thumb, I would say that's the case. So, you know, to do an apples to apples comparison in terms of wash quality, if uh, I have a rollover versus an express, oftentimes the express will churn out a, a slightly better product. And so, if you have a site that can have strong circulation so that you're not having a bunch of bottlenecks and you're able to construct a full tunnel, you know, your throughput is going to be greater and therefore the revenue derived from that profit center is going to be greater. So if the site has enough space to support it, then we always encourage operators to try and include it if they can. One of the downsides sometimes with the convenience store gas stations is they're either manned or unmanned. And then the other issue that you can run into if you have an in-by-automatic or even a small tunnel, the convenience store owner might not have the expertise around the in-by-automatic. And that might be more of a of an issue with larger chains. But, you know, if, if the car wash goes down, their solution to the problem is put a cone out front and call the service company to come out in three or four days. If you've got smaller independent operators, what do you typically coach them on? Well, similarly to if a convenience store was going to add a QSR concept, right? If they don't take the time and effort to invest in in really becoming good QSR operators, then it's likely that that profit center would suffer. So similarly on the car wash side, if they're not going to take the time to really understand their chemistry, understand the equipment, then yeah, they're probably going to be paying more to third parties on service calls. And it'll be one more reason for the consumer to kind of bypass that rollover in favor of a close by express. What I encourage operators to do if they're going to include car wash as a profit center is try to understand that profit center as well as they would understand the other profit centers on a convenience store site in order to ensure that they derive the maximum value from it. Yeah, that makes good sense. So under what conditions would you recommend an in-bay automatic product? If you don't have the space for a tunnel and you're in a fairly landlocked market that does not have sites surrounding it where an express operator is likely to come in, then I think it makes sense to add the additional profit center. But if someone has the opportunity in a secondary or tertiary market or a market that has more and improved land available, they can go after the larger sites that allows them to put out a better product, have higher throughput, be able to process more volume, which will lead to better traffic circulation on the site, then I think that's usually preferable. That makes sense. And also, I see them put in more smaller towns. I just had a friend that built one in a very small town in Idaho. It's not a town that I believe can support a tunnel. I mean, a lot of my assumptions about what, you know, size of town supporting tunnels has changed 
over the last year, but it, you know, I think they went with a really nice in-bay automatic operation as opposed to going with a tunnel. Definitely. And I think that becomes a question of how big is the trade area you're serving. So, you know, we see operators put in tunnels in smaller markets, but if there's, you know, a Walmart supercenter or Target that's kind of a driver and is pulling from a much larger surrounding radius, then it might make sense to invest in the larger car wash presentation. But I, I agree that definitely have smaller markets where making the investment in a full tunnel won't make sense. If the traffic can't support it, if the demographics don't support it, then as a C-store, you still want to provide benefit and value to your customers and more profit centers is definitely a way to do that. And when you compare an in-bay automatic to something like, you know, service base or things like that, you have the ability to have an additional profit center that doesn't necessarily carry with it higher labor costs and things like that. So there are definitely situations where an in-bay automatic makes more sense than uh, an alternative. Right, right. I've heard a rule of thumb on this, and I don't know how how it's measured, and it was a long time ago, but when you have a convenience store, there's a metric to say, depending on the number of customers or number of gallons of gas sold, you can expect to sell a car wash if you're selling them at the pumps. Is that true? And is there a metric for that? If there is a metric for it, that's probably something that the guys at BP's corporate real estate department or... Phillips 66 real estate department are going to know a lot about. What I encourage people to do is to hire a third party to do a feasibility study if it's a ground up construction project on a convenience store site. And oftentimes those feasibility studies will include an analysis of both projected fuel volume, projected C store volume, and projected car wash throughput. Are they always accurate? No, they're not always accurate, but it's a good starting point if the operator is kind of going into a new market and wants to have uh, uh, the expertise of a firm that only specializes in that type of analytics weigh in on what makes the most sense for their new project. So if somebody comes to you and say, I want to get in the business, how do you qualify them? Or I don't say qualify them, but how do you coach them on whether car washing convenience stores is a good fit for them? When people come to us, they usually have a pretty good sense of the project that they're looking to do at that point. So sometimes they'll come to us and they'll have a couple different sites they're considering and they'll ask us for feedback on which of those sites make the most sense and why. But we're rarely consulting someone on what type of business should they put on a site. By the time they come to us, they know if they're going to do an express exterior car wash, a flex car wash, a convenience store with fuel or a convenience store with fuel and other profit centers. So for us, the primary service that we're providing to that customer is really helping them identify financing that will meet the needs for this project, but also doesn't limit their future financing capabilities on future projects. Because for most car wash operators that are new to industry, once they get a taste of the industry, they don't want to do just one project. They're going to want to do a second project in a couple of years and a third project a couple of years after that. And 
it's possible that the financing that they get on their first project could limit some of their financing options on future ones. And so we always have an eye towards that to ensure that the deal that someone does with us today also sets them up for success down the road and that they'll continue to have all the options available to them for projects two, three, and four. No, oh, that's great. Yeah, that's that's really good because I kind of got myself boxed in a little bit and we'll talk about financing here in a minute, but I sort of got myself boxed in from a financing standpoint. I We only built three of them, but if I wanted to go to five or 10, I would have had to look at different financing vehicles at that point. And that's a common story. And oftentimes the borrower goes to their bank and comes to them with the project. The bank might encourage them to utilize a loan structure that serves the purpose of the project, but also serves the bank's purpose for the types of loans that they're trying to do at that time. And that might not be consistent with what's in the borrower's best long-term interests. And so the borrower might not hear that directly from the lender. And that's where, you know, a broker like myself who has the ability to speak to the borrower about different loan programs available from different lenders can really help the borrower kind of strategize their financing needs over the next two to five years, which sets them up to be more successful. Yeah, that makes great sense. That makes great sense from that standpoint. And it would make sense to work with somebody who's kind of an independent third party than working directly with a bank. Exactly. I mean, we have the ability to respond to the bank if the bank is going to put a condition on the borrower's approval that seems a little out of the ordinary, then we have the ability to kind of respond and really advocate for the borrower to make sure that the deal they get really is the best possible deal. Because bankers, as well-intentioned as they are, the banker still works for the bank. So we work for the client. We have the client's best interest at heart the entire time. And so that allows us to advocate for the borrower in a way that they can be confident that the financing that they received really was the best possible deal for them. That makes great sense. Do you recommend somebody stick with a particular lender on the next projects? The big issue that I had was the personal guarantees that the bank required. As an individual investor, they're just trying to limit their risk as best as possible. But we, you know, on project number three, they still wanted that personal guarantee, which over time gets a little irritating. I mean, we had great history with the first two car washes. The third one, you know, they were almost treating us like they treated us when we did our first one. But it's almost like there would be a conflict there if different lenders wanted different personal guarantees. How does someone navigate that? Yeah, I mean, I would say that more often than not, Lenders making a loan to a closely held corporation are going to look for at least one of the principals in that business entity to stand behind the loan and personally guarantee it. Now, that doesn't mean that the lender's taking a lien on a personal residence or anything like that, but it creates a situation where if you're not willing to provide the personal guarantee, the inevitable question from the lender is, well, why is this person not willing to do that? Do they not have confidence in the project or their ability to perform? And then From the SBA perspective, anytime a borrower is going to go get an SBA loan, there's a requirement that there be at least one personal guarantor for that loan. So, you know, when we talk about the one to five unit operator, a lot of those operators are getting financing through the SBA programs. And so someone is going to provide a personal guarantee. And then even if they're going conventional, you know, unless you have such a diversified ownership that there's no 
individual investor who owns 20% or more of the borrowing entity, then the vast majority of lenders are going to require at least one personal guarantor. Now, when you're talking about, you know, you've been an operator for three, four, five years, and now you have this proven track record and your sites are able to debt service their loans at, you know, three times, four times. Well, now we start to have an argument that the business really can support itself and there's no need for the guarantee. And we've tried to structure things for borrowers wherein we can get a little bit creative and say, let's have a personal guarantee for the first year or two and then have that burn off as long as there have been 24 months of consistent payments and all loan covenants have been met. And as an operator gets more mature in their growth, they're in a better position to make those types of requests from the lender and to have the lender give them what they're asking for. But even with that, I would still say that more often than not, when ownership is kind of spread out between a handful of parties, lenders are looking for personal guarantees. Yeah. The other issue of that, I guess, is if you're going to be talking about project three, four, and five, does the partnership arrangement need to be consistent as it is for project one and two to be able to get them to possibly forgive the loan guarantee? Not necessarily. I would say that's more of a case-by-case basis. But what I would say is that when it comes to SBA, SBA does pay attention to partnerships wherein there's a lot of overlap in between multiple different entities, but the ownership percentages are tweaked in a way that you have different guarantors on each loan. And increasingly, SBA is getting hip to that because SBA will have caps that are tied to guarantor social security numbers in terms of the total amount of borrowing that they can do. So rather than the SBA limits per borrower being tied to the tax ID number of the borrowing entity, it's tied to the social security number of the guarantor. And so shifting around ownership between various affiliated businesses in order to kind of skirt those rules is something that used to be commonplace but is decreasing in terms of its frequency because of the fact that it's something that SBA is increasingly paying attention to. Yeah, they've gotten a lot smarter over the years. I will guarantee you that. I'm I'm helping a client of mine right now process an SBA loan. And what they're asking for today is even different than what they asked for three or four years ago. So their requirements as far as making loans are increasing as well. What's your thoughts on SBA loans? When would you recommend them? When would you not recommend them? Yeah. So that's a conversation that we have with pretty much every borrower when we start with a new borrower. The primary advantage of SBA is leverage, that you can borrow at a higher loan to value. Additionally, SBA loans are fully amortized loans. So whereas a conventional commercial loan structure might be, you know, a 20 to 25 year amortization, but only a five to 10 year term, And so at the end of that term, you need to either pay it off or refinance it. SBA loans are fully amortized. Additionally, under the 504 program, which is one of two SBA programs primarily used by car wash operators to finance their projects, the other one being the SBA 7A program, the 504 loans are made up of two loans, one from a bank and one from a certified development company or CDC. And the CDC loans right now are at historically low rates. So people are able to lock in 25-year financing that is fixed at below 2.5%. 
which is better than people are doing on their primary mortgage for single family residences. So I would say that a lot of borrowers talk to me about how the documentation process or just the loan process in general with SBA is more cumbersome. While there's elements of truth to that, post the 2008 recession, I would say that conventional lending has gotten a little bit more documentation intensive and SBA lending has actually gotten a little bit more streamlined. So the difference between the two has gotten smaller. And if you work with someone who's really experienced in SBA lending, then they should be able to kind of quarterback the process in a way that for the borrower experience, it doesn't feel that different from a conventional loan. Yeah. Yeah. They should be asking for the same information once instead of twice. Exactly. So our, our loan processors, you call them CDCs, is that correct? The people that process SBA loans? Well, there are two SBA loan programs that are primarily used by car wash operators to finance their projects. One is the SBA 7A program and the other is a 504. So under the 7A program, those loans are made by banks and non-bank lenders and the SBA provides a guarantee to that lender that today is 75% of the loan amount is guaranteed by the SBA. That's different from the SBA 504 program, which is made up of two loans, one from the bank and then one from the CDC. So the 504 program essentially consists of a conventional loan in a senior position at 50% of the project cost, and then a CDC loan that is junior or subordinate to that bank loan at somewhere between 30 and 35% of the project cost. And you're actually making two different loan applications, one to the bank and one to the CDC that run concurrently, but it's two different application processes. So to answer your question, a bank is going to process a SBA 7A loan. A 504 loan will be processed by both a bank and a CDC, and each of those parties will be processing their own loan that work in concert with each other, but are still two separate loans. So the disadvantage of an SBA loan is obviously there's transaction fees that go along with it. And depending on the CDC, there's different fee structures, which I found out later. And the other thing about the SBA loan, which is interesting, is if you sell too early, there's some pretty significant penalty fees that you pay SBA if you want to get out of your loan sooner than later. True, but I would say that conventionally, many borrowers are looking for fixed rate loans and the lenders are oftentimes matching a prepayment penalty to the fixed rate period. So if we go get a 25-year loan due in 10, that's fixed for five years and then repricing and refixing for the final five years uh, on a conventional loan, because we have that five-year fixed initial period, we're oftentimes seeing lenders place a five-year prepayment penalty to kind of tie to that fixed rate period. So that's a place where on the SBA 7A program, all of those loans, if the maturity is a 20 or 25-year maturity, is going to have a three-year prepayment penalty, 5% in year one, 3% in year two, and 1% in year three. And that prepayment penalty runs from the initial funding of the loan. So if you're doing a ground-up construction project and you're going to spend six to 12 months building that project, 
then from the moment the project opens, you might only have two years left on a prepayment penalty. That's 3% in the first year of operations and 1% in the second year of operations. So if you're someone who thinks that, you know, you want to build it, kind of get it up and running, stabilized, and then flip out of it, then that might be a great loan structure that allows you to leverage yourself while not having a, a longer prepayment penalty that would impact your proceeds on the sale. Yeah, that makes good sense. When people do construction bridge loans, why do banks do bridge loans for construction versus actually running the business? More often than not, what we see when we see a conventional lender do a bridge loan, it's usually a situation where the project isn't ready for construction, but the borrower needs to close on the purchase of the underlying real estate. And so the lender will step in and they won't want to necessarily fund their construction loan until permits are handed, the construction's ready to break ground. So they'll provide this interim bridge loan that will allow the borrower to close on the land and hold it while they're completing the permitting process for construction. If we're talking about an SBA 504 loan, the SBA portion of the 504 loan, which is the portion funded by the CDC, that can only be funded once the loan proceeds are fully dispersed. So on a construction project, you don't have a fully dispersed loan until construction is complete, retainage is paid, et cetera. And so there, the lender has to provide an interim or bridge loan until the CDC is ready to come in and take it out and and put in place the permanent financing. Okay. Yeah. I think I remember that process taking place too. So that's why bridge loans are done. That makes good sense. When do you encourage car wash operators or convenience operators to refinance loans? What's the typical spread in terms of the interest rates? Yeah, I mean, right now we're looking at historically low rates. So now's a great time to give a hard look at refinancing, particularly if you are someone who had an SBA 7A loan and you are getting to the end of that three-year prepayment penalty period. Now's a great time to look at, at a refinance. Additionally, if you have identified an expansion project that you want to do, lenders can be apprehensive about doing a cash out refinance when the money could go to buying a new boat or putting it all on black at the roulette tables. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but if the money is going to go into as seed money for a down payment on, on a new expansion project, then oftentimes they will be supportive of a cash out refinance. So I wouldn't say the only time to do it is when there's a rate and term improvement, but it might also be an opportunity to unlock some equity in an existing site that will provide the capital for future expansion. And what would you recommend if somebody's going to remodel their car wash? I always took cash flow to do that. I saved money and put it in a kind of our, our bank required us to do a maintenance reserve account, which I appreciate them requiring us to do because it forced me to save money, but it also you know, allowed me not to have to pay all the money to my partners. <laughs> when do you recommend either taking it out of cash flow or financing new tunnel equipment? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think it really depends on the scope of the renovation or remodel being contemplated. But again, I got to go back to the fact that we're in an interest rate environment where we have historically low interest rates that you know, someone has the ability to go borrow at uh, three, four percent, or even five percent, then I think there's justification for looking to 
finance uh, those renovations with debt and really kind of reserve their cash for expansion into another location. Okay. Yeah. So just whatever you can do to conserve your cash for other opportunities or projects would make sense. Definitely. And rainy days. And, you know, when we're dealing with the uncertainty of a global pandemic and the possibility of new shelter in place orders and things like that, that have the ability to impact consumer behavior. I think those are definitely the times where you want to conserve a little bit more cash just because you don't, you don't know what the world's going to look like in 2021. Right. No doubt. So how is COVID-19? I mean, the question of the year is how has COVID-19 affected your industry and your business? So I would say on the whole, a deal that was a good deal in February of 2020 is still a good deal today and therefore can get financed. Deals that would have been perceived as weaker or riskier in February are the ones that are more likely to struggle today. So ones that you know are at a higher loan to value or with appraisal shortfalls and things like that. Those might be the ones where lenders are getting a little bit squirrelier. But the fortunate thing is that car washes seem to be one of the success stories of the COVID era. You know, anecdotally, we hear from many of our clients that wash volumes, memberships, et cetera, have either remained flat or increased relative to 2019. And the data we've analyzed thus far supports that. We have even seen clients who have done ground up projects that have opened after 2020 that have either hit or exceeded their projections, despite the changes in consumer behavior resulting from the pandemic, including things like people working from home more, limitations on capacity for in-person retail. So I think that you're going to see car washes continue to be able to secure bank financing, even as pandemic effects linger. Additionally, what's historically happened during recessions is that SBA lending is really going to increase. So the purpose of the SBA programs generally is to incentivize lenders to make loans that they wouldn't want to make conventionally. And so when we look at what SBA did to spur lending in 2008 is they waived guarantee fees for borrowers. They increased the percentage of the loans they were guaranteeing for the lender from 75 to 90%. And so we expect that in a subsequent round of stimulus that we're going to see some of those things take place, which is great for the industry as a whole, because that'll mean that debt is going to continue to be available to existing operators and new to industry operators. Yeah, good. No, I, I think so. I think car washing has been one of the fortunate industries that hasn't been affected. I mean, you could be in the cruise ship industry and trying to figure out what to do with all these cruise ships that are parked. So, yeah, we're very fortunate to be in the industry we're in right now. Definitely. Aside from PPE manufacturers, I think we're, we're right yeah. up there. <laughs> That's true. The other question I have would be on real estate. So, I'm seeing a lot more people get kind of get pushed into leasing real estate as opposed to getting to buy it. And that's probably more common in Southern California than it is in other areas of the country. But I get very nervous about leasing arrangements. What what do you recommend to your clients if they come to you with a lease agreement versus a purchase? Yeah. So I always try to encourage clients to come to us with a lease before it is signed because there are certain clauses that we want to see in a lease that ensures its financeability by a, a typical lender. And so those include things like, you know, the lender's right to cure defaults, tenant defaults, the lender's right to 
foreclose and assign the lease to a buyer after the foreclosure. And so once the lease is signed, that's really going to govern your relationship with that landlord for you know the next 30 to 50 years. So it's key to make sure that the relevant clauses are in there because it's not just going to affect your ability to get financing, but it's going to also affect your ability to sell one day because the person you sell to might not be a cash buyer and they might need financing. And so if the lease isn't properly set up for that, then that could adversely impact your ability to sell. We too are seeing a shift, particularly in higher income areas with more expensive real estate, where you have more and more operators looking at leases. And what a lot of operators don't realize is that the debt available to them on lease locations is relatively similar to what's available to them for a location where they own the underlying real estate as long as the lease is properly structured. And when you have markets that are very competitive, where operators are willing to you know, build very close by to each other, I think the key is making sure that you're, you're out positioning your competition. And so if that means that you might need to lease your real estate instead of purchasing your real estate, you know, the reality is you're not really achieving the benefit of owning the real estate until the, the end of your mortgage term. And so if you're not going to hold the site for the 20 to 25 years to pay off your mortgage, but you're only going to hold it for, you know, five to 10 or five to 15 years, then you don't necessarily get a huge benefit to owning the underlying land. With a properly structured ground lease, you still get to depreciate your improvements, still get to depreciate the equipment. So I would encourage operators to take a hard look at leasing. If my choice is lease an A-plus location or purchase a B-minus location down the street, I would generally opt to lease the A location because these are cash flow businesses. So I think the most important thing is really looking at the site selection criteria that most operators and equipment distributors and consultants to the industry kind of agree on things like retail synergy, daytime population, population density as a whole, speed of traffic and access, competition. And don't be uh, afraid to go for a lease location as long as you're able to get a long enough lease term and a properly structured lease that doesn't limit your ability to get financing. Makes good sense. Well, that changed my mind about leasing. I had kind of been had an allergy toward it for years, but what you're saying makes perfect sense because when we had our sale transaction last year, you know, we didn't, you, you don't get to take advantage of land depreciation. And so sometimes, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't make sense to, to own the land. Exactly. So real quickly, last question, how would you, somebody came to you and said they wanted to sell their business. How do you coach them to get ready for that process? It's key for them to make sure they have clean books and records. You know, we see all the time that there's a sole owner or, you know, a couple of siblings own a business. And so they don't necessarily worry too much about having clean financial statements. And what that's going to result in is when your buyer comes along and they want to either go get financing or even pay cash, if they can't really wrap their head around the actual financial performance of the site or which expenses are really owner expenses and therefore supportable ad backs, 
versus those expenses that are true operating expenses. Lack of clarity, lack of cleanliness is always going to adversely impact the seller. So the fortunate thing for sellers is that there's, again, so little inventory on the market that they can get away with things that uh, a seller in another industry might not be able to because there is a undersupply of car wash sites available today. But if you're going to try to command top dollar, I think the key is ensuring that the due diligence information that you provide to a buyer ties to the marketing information that went into marketing the site for sale and that the information and documentation is sufficiently clean that the buyer's lender will be able to wrap their head around it and the buyers themselves and their advisors are going to be able to wrap their head around it. Yeah, no, I've been preaching that for three years on this podcast that, you know, it's a very short-term view if you're not separating your personal and your business income and expenses, because when you do want to sell your business, that comes home to roost in a, in a horrible way. And I, I do agree that probably the industry is doing so well right now that people will, you know, maybe buy something where they wouldn't have bought it earlier, but you don't get full value for your your business when you do that. Correct. And the one thing I'll add to that is, you know, we see operators all the time vest multiple locations in the same entity. And if they decide that they only want to sell one of those locations, then again, that's another place where just having well-organized books and records is going to make it much easier for them to sell a single location as opposed to all the locations vested within a single entity. And a lot of operators either don't do that or, and it adversely impacts them. So an easy way to do it is just vest each location in a different entity. But if you're not going to do that, then you certainly want to make sure that you can provide site level financials for the site being sold without having to provide the entity financials and do some type of, you know, back of the napkin subtraction to pull out the sites that aren't being sold. So organization is key. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And even from a liability standpoint, to me, it always made sense to have different entities so you can kind of keep them keep them separate in case of an event. Definitely agree with that. Reuven, this has been a great conversation. I've learned so much. You've changed my mind about a few things, which means to me, this is a very successful podcast. So if people want to find out about what you do in your organization, where would you send them to? You can go to our website, www.petrocalassociates.com to learn more about us and our company. And David, I really appreciate the opportunity and had a great time chatting with you. And thanks again. Yeah, thank you. It was great. I learned a bunch. Thank you so much. So thanks for listening to this episode of Car Wash the Podcast. We're always interested in getting this podcast in the hands of more people in our car wash industry. So if you will, please tell your friends and associate about this podcast. You can get Car Wash the Podcast anywhere you get podcasts on your mobile phone, or you can simply go to the website, carwashthepodcast.com. And for Matt DeWolf, my co-host and myself, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time and keep washing those cars. Car Wash the Podcast is your source for real stories and real business insights from the experts, both in and out of the car wash industry. Our show helps investors, owners, operators, and managers think about ways to enhance their business. 
Our podcast is a free, on-demand audio program that provides information on the latest trends impacting the industry, tips from successful industry leaders, and inspiration for our listeners.